Hello and welcome to the Brothers F. This week uh, I'm Juan Carlos and I'm I'm going to be joined by two friends of mine from high school, good friends, Lucas and Matt. Maybe you guys want to start off by introducing yourselves, Lucas. Hello, I'm Lucas. I don't want to spoil necessarily what my favorite book is yet because I think it ties very closely to the book we'll be talking about today. But Ooh. I do have a soft spot for children's books. And growing up, I was a very, very avid reader. I'd say that is the most prolific period of my life for reading. So I was very excited because I had not read today's book yet, uh, and I was looking forward to it. Awesome. And I should have mentioned we're, we're today we're going to be talking about *A Wrinkle in Time* by Madeline Lengel, this classic children's book published in the in the sixties. Um, Matt, who are you? Yeah, I'm, I know who you are. Yeah, you do. I, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm a close friend of Juan Carlos. I'm very happy to be on the show today. Uh, very happy to be talking about A Wrinkle in Time. Um, uh, actually, a book that I, I hadn't read before. Uh, definitely one that I thought about reading a lot as a kid. I guess I just never got around to it. So it was very interesting to sort of tackle this book for the first time as like, as a young adult who recently graduated college, 24 years old. So definitely an interesting perspective to come at th- this book from. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I had my own little memories from reading it when I was like eight or something. Um, so great. Well, before we, 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 we jump in, actually, I have, I have a story that I wanted to tell you guys. Because Lucas, our listeners won't know this, but Lucas is a huge fan. You're a huge fan of Car Talk, the show. This is true. I absolutely love it. On our podcast, on the Brothers F, we love Car Talk. We think we think we should be a kind of car talk, actually. So, um, so I had my own little car talk moment that I wanted to tell you guys about yesterday. So we, we, uh, the, the sort of the third car in my house, my mom's car, my dad's car, and we have a third car that's uh, a Toyota RAV4, a 2010 car. Uh, we bought it used, and it's, you know, it's not in great shape. We put a lot of money into that car to try to keep it running, and everyone sort of drives it. My sisters abuse it a little. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so we need some love, the RAV4. And the brakes were low. So there was some indicator light and there was some kind of very faint but weird noise when you were braking. So I drove it gingerly to Jacob's Auto Service, which is a mile down the road from our house. And I just wanted to tell you guys about my experience about Jacob's. At Jacobs, briefly, if I could, because it was nice. So Jacobs is run by this guy named Sam. Sam is Lebanese. He's uh, he's a short guy. He's on the older side. Very sort of jovial man, I would say. And mm-hmm. uh, so I pull into Jacobs and uh, and I park the Rav Four, and I walk out. And Sam comes out to meet me, like halfway. Puts his arm around my shoulder. Juan Carlos, he says. How have you been? <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm doing well. <laughs> I didn't know that he would remember me. But he likes my dad. My dad likes him. So so, uh, so it's a nice thing. So I explain, listen, I think it might be the tires. My dad thinks it's the brakes. It's the RAV4 again. He knows the RAV4. We've brought the RAV4 there many times. Sam walks around the RAV4 a few times. He studies the tires. He says to me, the tires look good to me. I said, okay. He gets in the car and he drives it around the gas station, just like in little squares around the gas station, but he sort of accelerates forward and then, and then slams on the brakes to try to get a sense for the brakes. Mm-hmm. 
does this like five times. I'm like, wow, what is this man going to tell me? I would believe, by the way, anything this man tells me about a car. He knows cars. And he runs this big auto shop with a bunch of guys working for him. So Sam gets out. He parks the car. He leaves the keys in ignition. And he walks out without a word to me. And he goes into the office. So I'm standing there for like five minutes. And finally, it's freezing cold. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go inside. I, co- I go inside. Sam is at the computer typing with like two fingers. <laughs> holds up one of those fingers to me, you know, indicating to me that I should wait. And, uh, and he's like, hang on. I want Genaro to take a look at it. So Genaro is one of the, one of the, uh, the Central American guys who works in the auto shop. Older guy, a lot of, lot of experience. So he, he goes into sort of the garage area and he yells, Hanado, RAV4, 2010. And Hanado comes out and then he just finds the car in the lot. And uh, he takes the car like out onto the street now. So he drives for like five, 10 minutes. And, uh, and I've actually heard about this guy from my dad. This guy like really knows a lot about cars. Hanado comes back, uh, pulls into the garage, comes out, delivers his diagnosis to me in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good, but uh, but let's just say my technical Spanish is is poor. <laughs> um, but but no, I, I sort of picked up the pieces. I was pretty proud. I was pretty proud that I was able to uh, to keep up. He explained it's going to need new brakes. Uh, he goes back to the car. He shines a flashlight into the sort of back back tires, and he says there's a loose balinera, which I was informed means ball bearing, something like that. Mm-hmm. Loose balinera on the back wheels. And uh, and they're going to keep the car, and he'll call me tomorrow. But the whole experience, I was just I was just so impressed by these guys and their expertise because I don't know. I brought a car to the shop before when I bring into sort of the bigger dealerships, and they usually just plug a computer into the car, and then the car tells them what's wrong. But but not here, not here at Jacobs. So I just wanted to tell you guys about that. I thought that was a pretty pretty nice uh, pretty nice moment. No, it's it's definitely a uh, the manual car. Uh, repairs are definitely a lost art. I went recently because my car had a similar issue, and it is really nice to bring it in and to have someone who who just like turns it on. And I had a similar thing. I had a my car just wasn't working properly. The guy turns it on and just listened to it for quite a while and told me to be quiet and was just there, kind of revving a little bit, trying to figure out what's going on. And it's very very satisfying to yeah. have someone with that level of expertise. Yeah, exactly. It's like watching an artist, you know. I never saw I never saw Vladimir Horst play the piano, but I saw Hanato diagnose what was wrong with my car. And that was <laughs> that is fun. Yeah, might have to might have to start going to that car dealership now. I don't know. I've just been taking like with our third car, we just take it to like just like a generic like Honda dealership, and it's a, definitely not the same experience. Although the the guy who the guy who serviced our car last time was an ex Philadelphia Eagle, which was pretty sick i thought (laughs) that's uh that's amazing i didn't recognize him at all i think he was a little bit before my time but it was was, it's definitely pretty cool in its own right i don't know i guess you figure out like like that's what a lot of like low level backup linebackers are doing nowadays so (laughs) yeah that's funny that's like when i was younger i was in the eighth grade i broke my leg and i was in the hospital it was bad bad break and uh, and a big guy. I wasn't a huge football fan, but a, a guy in the Patriots came in and signed the signed the football and gave it to me. And uh, he was on the practice squad. And so I, I, to this day, I don't know exactly how I should feel about that. Like it's super cool, 
it's super nice of him, but you know, also it's, you know, it's, it's the practice squad, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's a level down, I guess. I don't know if that makes me super ungrateful. Well, I'm sure it's a very big deal for him. I'm sure he appreciated being able to go and, and do that for you, regardless of you, yeah. your appreciation. He was That man was humongous. I think he was an offensive <laughs> lineman. But, uh, but anyway, anyway, I just wanted to, yeah, I wanted to share for our listeners, maybe who now are hooked on car talk. I hope that there's still some car talk out there. You know, there's no new episodes of car talk these days, but there's still some car talk, car talk style, uh, uh, you know, knowledgeable, knowledgeable mechanics out there. But, uh, but anyway, wrinkle in time. I know we've got some strong wrinkle in time opinions in here. And, uh, so I just want to start. I mean, what were your guys' thoughts? Uh, just yeah, on, on a basic on a basic level, I, I I wouldn't say that the like I was fully sucked in a lot of the time. I would say a lot of time I was like sort of just like kind of dipping my toes in, not really sure what to think, not really sure if it's good or not good. I'd, I'd say that there were a lot of elements that that I liked, like especially the beginning, kind of before like everything breaks open and they start to test her and they go on the like sort of like grander sci-fi journey. I kind of like the opening part a lot where they were just sort of living as a family. Um, I, I Maybe my biggest take is I was just like not a fan of the like the villain, I guess you could say that the it, the brain, the the like black thing. I thought that that sort of detracted a lot from how like the plot developed throughout but overall, yeah, I did. I definitely did enjoy the read overall. Enjoyed the read. Okay, I think I would agree with a lot of that on my end. Um, yeah, the home life was nice. I'm thinking. Okay, maybe for the listeners, this is a common book, but maybe I should give a quick, uh, a quick. We can give a quick plot summary. We can cobble it together here. So, main character uh, Meg Murray. She's this precocious girl. She's in high school. She's kind of quirky and, uh, you know, people give her a hard time at school. She's super sharp, but, uh, you know, she looks a little like her hair is messy and she's, uh, she's tall and she's sort of lanky and, uh, and people give her a hard time. So the Murrays, they have four kids and the dad, who's a scientist, both the parents are scientists. The dad disappeared a few years ago. Uh, and they love their dad, and they know that their dad loved him. So people in the town, they make these nasty comments like, that the dad ran off with some some younger woman or something. But they know, you know, like wherever our dad is, we know that he, he cares about us and he wants to come home. And uh, so that's how the book opens with this big question mark of like, where is dad? And then eventually uh, these these sort of like tramps move into town. And tramp number one is named Mrs. What's It? And it turns out that these tramps are not actually tramps. They're actually kind of like angels slash witches from a different world. And anyway, they explain that uh, that the Murray's dad, he's in trouble. And so Meg and her youngest brother, Calvin, they need to go and... Oh, excuse me, Charles, Charles. The youngest brother's Charles, and they have a friend named Calvin. And the three of them, Meg, Calvin, and Charles, they need to go with these with these witches slash angels, Mrs. What's It and Mrs. Witch and Mrs. Who, I think. Um, they need to go and they need to travel through space and time to go save Mr. Murray, save the dad. So that's the story in a nutshell. Do you think I got do you guys think I did it I did it justice there? That's a pretty good summary. I hit the high points. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. So, so, so Lucas, what, uh, what, uh, what were your takeaways? What were your, did you like it? Did you not like it on a basic level? Uh, so on a very basic level, as someone who's, you know, early twenties, I, I just didn't connect with it. I didn't appreciate it very much. That being said, when I went to the store to actually go buy the book, I had no idea what the book was, where to even find it. And I was looking through the fiction section and it wasn't there. And I was a little surprised because I thought it was fiction. And then I actually found it on a special bookshelf for sixth graders. And that was my own, that was my first introduction to what this book was. So I went into it knowing I was not the target audience. Uh, and because of that, I read it trying to look through uh, the lens of either um, me like 12, 15 years ago and seeing if I would appreciate the book then and through the lens of me in 10 or so years, maybe reading the book to my own child. Ooh. And I have to admit that I don't think I would appreciate the book in, in any of those scenarios very much. Okay. Yeah, that was a series of first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you gotta elaborate. Before we go on, I want to say this book won a Newbery Medal in 1963. So, I mean, it's yeah. Like, I mean, this is super fair. I also didn't love the book, but I want the listeners to know it's it's a beloved book. I mean, you got three pretty hot takes here uh, from people who didn't love it. But but yeah, Lucas, tell us more. I mean, you didn't connect with it. Uh, uh, there's so many points I want to hit here in terms of just what rubbed me the wrong way. But overall, I would say that the book is not bad. On a scale from bad to good, it's just, it's squarely in the middle. I finished the book and I didn't regret the time I spent reading it. It was fine. But I don't think I'd ever want to re return to this book by any means. So I just want to make sure people don't think I'm hating on the book or anything. Um, but I, I am going to be a little bit critical of it here. But actually, before we get into negative stuff, can we can we start with everyone's favorite part of the book? Can we do that first? Oh, yeah. That's actually a really good idea. Keep it positive. Um, I'm going to say I like the kind of relationship between Meg and Calvin. So Calvin is this guy in high school who's also kind of a misfit. And then they sort of meet each other. And, and Meg's kind of bashful and Calvin's kind of bashful. But they end up being good friends. And there's, you know, there's a little wrinkle of, wrinkle of uh, romantic... Uh, romantic kindling there i guess so i think that's a nice thing i think it seems it reads pretty natural to me and i think it's it's nice for two misfits to find each other yeah yeah meg meg and calvin were uh we're definitely vibing um i i have a, like a couple like very specific examples of stuff that i liked like uh, th it might be weird that like how specific these are but but like there's one description of the uh, is the first planet they go to i think it um, my recall is bad here it start, started with a u like uriel maybe um yeah so they go to that planet and it's just absolutely beautiful and i thought the, de the description of the planet was was just so beautiful and like kind of like shot me for a second um particularly I'm a, I'm a sucker for for mountains and i just like the, uh, the imagination behind like mountains that like Go, like seemingly rise forever um and then as they sort of like travel up i believe they like fly up towards the top i just thought it was the the, the description was so imaginative um and i thought that that was definitely something that i like that, that was that was probably the moment that i appreciated most another similar moment to that was was again on ixchel um sort of near the end where they describe like the the music that 
um, this sort of alien creature is creating. And I just thought like the, the way it's written, the, the way it's described, uh, just sort of like, like got to me in, in a way. Um, yeah, so that would, that'd be a positive. I definitely do have a lot of critiques as well. And I would say my favorite part of the book was was something that she must have decided before she even went into the book is the fact that the main character uh, is not perfect, is far from perfect. Uh, first of all, the character struggles in school. Meg isn't doing well there. It doesn't seem like Meg has too many friends. And I always find these these children's books that focus on the imperfect child to to really be a nice a nice model because it lets the kid, no matter who the kid is reading it, connect with the connect with the main character. And I, I really appreciate that. And I like the fact that almost actually none of the kids in the story were perfect in any way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with both of those, actually. And thinking back on it, the description of Uriel, the planet, uh, your point, Matt, it is super beautiful and super imaginative. Uh, they climb these epic mountains, there's these kind of centaur-like creatures. And something that I just thought was cool and sort of a nice twist is uh, they like pick these sort of magical flowers, I guess, from a tree. And then as they're being flown up higher and higher, the atmosphere gets thinner and they have to hold the flowers up to their face to breathe through them. And uh, I don't know. It was just pretty cool. Yeah, I would say that was sort of a part of the book that I that gripped me a little bit more. We're just seeing all these sort of beautiful other worlds. And then to your point as well, Lucas, I do like, I do like that as well. It's very sort of, I don't know. Yeah, the characters are rough around the edges. I think that's a good antidote to you know, perfectionism. Um, trying to think of something I liked from the book. I think I liked the love and the hope that the family has about their father. Like I thought that that was sort of a nice and optimistic thing when people say these sort of mean side comments, but, uh, but you hold on deep down, like, you know, your father's a good man and you know that he loves you and that he wants to be with you and that if he's not with you, it's for a very good reason. And it, I mean, it's, it's, you know, unsurprising, I would say, but still nice that, um, that the Murrays are vindicated in this, uh. Okay, so those are some positives. Um... I just want to say it's it's interesting that Matt had said that he he liked the description of things because that was one of the things that I had actually found uh, lacked in the book. And and uh, to give one example of that, when they were describing what Miss Watson and Miss and whoever the people were, and what they become some kind of non-human being, they go from being the the, the tramp of the town to all of a sudden they magically become what I guess can be described as a centaur, but my, my frustration with the book, which, which I really just got annoyed by is, you know, that like when you're a little kid and you see something so amazing and you try and describe it. And the only thing you can really get out is that it's amazing and it's super cool. And you don't actually get any real descripting words out. That's the sense that I got so often with this book. Like there's a, there's a scene here where Miss What's It becomes the centaur thing. And here's a quote, something like a horse, but at the same time, completely unlike a horse. She seemed really excited to be describing it, but in describing it, she took away some of the magic. So then she would kind of backtrack halfway through describing it. And it made it very difficult for me to have an image in my head because she would waffle back and forth a lot. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of into it.
And I mean, I, I get the point of you're trying to make it sound really amazing. You do that. But it, it comes off as a little bit of a cop out, I thought. When, like, imagine you had read, like, Lord of the Rings or yeah. some other amazing fantasy novel. And when they go to describe the elves, they just say, these humans and yet so clearly not human. You just, you wouldn't get a description of what's really going on. You can't get this image in your head. And I think that just waving your hands at it takes away some of the magic. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think that the... It's just a very different tone than like Lord of the Rings. Like the author isn't really, yeah, the author's just like sort of going for a vague like tone. I think that's kind of like what she's trying to do in a way. Yeah. So this is, this is really interesting, Lucas, because the vagueness and the sort of ambiguity rubbed you the wrong way, it sounds like. And I get that. It's maybe a bit of a, yeah, she's just sort of gesturing at things as opposed to really sorting them out. But the thing that that I didn't love about the book was sort of the flip side that at certain times she was just a little bit too much too on the nose for my taste. Like the symbolism was a little bit too too clear cut, and uh, you know, like the cosmic battle between good and evil. I feel like okay, I could have made some of these steps without you know the Mrs. W spelling them out uh, in, in these different places. So so maybe we can switch now, Matt. You mentioned that you didn't like the villain, and I. I also had some quibbles with the whole sort of evil element in the book. So maybe you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like exactly what you said. It's just it's just way too on the nose. I, I mean, there are examples other in other literature, other media, where it's just like a flat out like good versus evil scenario where there's in Lord of the Rings, like uh, Sauron is just like evil in like its most pure sense. And like, that's kind of what this like brain is here. But just the way that they sort of present and introduce um, this like it villain figure as the uh, the story begins to progress, just kind of yeah, like they just sort of give it to you like way too upfront, and they really don't like make any mystery out of it, um, and it's it's very in your face, black and white, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The fact that the villain is a brain that can sort of explain its plans to you is maybe a little disappointing to me because you know where do you go from there? So, so, uh, so to be clear here, the it turns out that the father, the Murray's father, he's being imprisoned on this planet called Kamazots. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and uh, and the whole thing about Kamazots is that it's a planet where perfect conformity is being achieved. And anyone who sort of breaks out of that conformity is punished until they're sort of willing to step back into line. So when they first get there, they're walking down the street and they see, uh, you know, all these kids playing in their yards, bouncing a ball at exactly the same time and exactly the same rhythm. And all the houses are identical. And then all the doors open and all the mothers come out in the same way, wearing the same clothes, call to the kids and the kids leave the ball and go inside. So it's like a, a planet full of robots. And uh, the brain, it, is sort of controlling all of these robots. And, uh, and he claims, or it claims, that life is just better when you sort of, you put up with this. If you, like, it can protect you from any pain, any suffering, uh, if everyone just sort of uh, agrees to follow its, its plan. And, uh, and this is sort of the evil, like the great evil behind everything in the book that they have to confront. What do you think, Lucas? Did you did you buy it? 
I thought I thought that it was a bit of a cliche, basically, just to have a villain who just their purpose in this universe is to be a villain, and it, it's sometimes nice to have some kind of depth to characters like that. Um, but you know, actually, to turn this into one thing that I was really this reminded me of that I was very surprised by is that when the there's this very clear story arc through the whole through the whole book. Basically, they start on Earth, and there's this whole mystery. The whole first half of the book is kind of being introduced to the universe, figuring out how things work. You find out who this villain is, and then right after you find out the villain, they save the father. Um, and the thing that I really liked about this book is that the father actually does very little, um, and it's repeated over and over again. Is that is that Meg is all excited she saved the father, but then he doesn't fix the situation. He doesn't solve it. He doesn't have the ability to. Um, and I thought that was, was actually surprisingly a very nice touch for this book because as a kid, I think that oftentimes it seems like your parents will be there and they'll be the solution to every problem you run into. But as you get into middle school and as you get into the age that this book is targeting, you start to realize that that isn't necessarily true. So while I do think that the evil being was a bit too, I guess, like on the nose, I think that it's it's kind of necessary because it, it symbolizes a lot of things and it's not an evil that can be easily like destroyed or or um, or done away with. So I thought that it wasn't too bad because I think that at the same time there isn't a clear hero to to take it down. So it wasn't as much of a cliche as I expected. Yeah, that's a good point. That makes any sense. A, yeah, that's a very good point. There's like sort of a lot of messiness on the good side, right? There are these very powerful creatures, the Mrs. W's but they actually can't help. And it's like sort of very uh, opaque why they can't help, but they're only sort of able to give these very cryptic hints and these objects um, to the three children, Calvin, Charles, and Meg, who are nothing more than that. They're just kids. They have no idea what they're doing and they have to go in and they have to fix it. And then you're right. Meg sort of, she's putting everything on, on finding her dad. Once we have father back, he's going to be able to fix everything. And then... You're right. That comes up a lot. Uh, then Meg's like, oh my gosh, we found father and like nothing's fixed. This hasn't fixed anything. Um, here's a, here's a, here's a, uh, a newer take that's kind of funny that I want to run you got run, run by you guys. It. So when they first meet it, it's this brain or it's this man standing at like the, the the end of a very long room. The room is full of computers that are just sort of churning out. I don't know exactly what they're churning out like forms for people to fill out or ways to sort of enforce this, like uh, grant this master plan of conformity. And I have to say the book, I think, I mean, the book was written in the sixties and I think it was written for sure with, with communism in mind, but uh, the book reads very differently in the face of these like, humongous tech companies you know like when what i like to imagine what i like to imagine uh uh jeff bezos i guess i guess he's he's gonna retire now but but you know a few months ago jeff bezos if i can imagine him it would be like this man with these like really intense eyes like sitting at the end of this humongous room full of computers and like you know small business owner after small business owner comes up in front of him and he convinces them that they don't actually want to run their, you know, the shoe shop that their parents ran, but they actually want to, you know, drive his trucks for him and deliver deliver his goods so that people can be even more comfortable and <laughs> even more uniform. So I thought it was kind of funny. I feel like that's that's kind of a nice updating of the book. Do, do you guys buy it or no? Yeah, I buy it. I think it. Yeah, it runs along a lot of the same themes, and and it's 
I, I think that theory is definitely more interesting to think about than like the communism one, just because the communism one is like so very clear and apparent. Yeah. Mm. I thought one of, one of my, or one of like the most interesting things that I sort of picked up on in terms of like, um, connection between like some more real world stuff and like this sort of fantastical journey whatever that they're going on is like it's kind of like a critique of like education that keeps coming up like i think that i could be wrong here but i'm pretty sure that um during that scene with the computers and they meet the it figure uh, the id figure is trying to get them to conform by having them like recite their recite their times tables, and mm. I guess the antidote the antidote for that is I, I, do, I believe they like try to say the Declaration of Independence or I think it just it, it it was very interesting to think about how the book's sort of trying to to make this point about like learning and not just like following whatever whatever sort of uh your superiors in school tell you to do uh but sort of like trying to learn on your own accord um like i think they even go out of their way and making a point and saying like oh like meg uh says that she only learned the declaration of independence because she wanted to like she did it outside of school and meg is good at math because of things her dad taught her these shortcuts um and not not good at math because of the way that the school teaches her to do math um so i thought that was that was one of the interesting more interesting takeaways i had yeah. uh in terms of like real world applications of some of the themes of the story yeah yeah it's a good point like i it's like it's maybe a little flat sort of the primary message which is just sort of top-down conformity being forced by some central figure. But it's kind of cooler to think about how we're enforcing that kind of conformity ourselves. Like, there's one line where they're walking through Kamazots. This was hilarious, actually. They're walking through Kamazots, and uh, and they're like, it was creepy. It was like, everybody looked the same. The same way when you ride the subway, everyone sort of looks the same. But on the subway on Earth, um, you know, there's kind of, there's a few occasional characters who who, who are different, who don't conform. And that wasn't true on Kamazots. And I was reading that on to, when I was taking the subway. <laughs> I was on the train home. And uh, and I looked up around me, and every single person in the car was on their phone. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is this is kind of uh she's she's keeping it uh keeping it relevant here, you know. Yeah, and then the, the people who don't conform on the subway, it's like wow, like the, the those are those are the weird ones, you know. <laughs> that'd be my my first thought, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I think one one of my takeaways from this is uh, is kind of the it's obviously they uh, she creates a dystopia, um, and recently I reread nineteen eighty four and Brave New World because I was going through a little high school reading kick. Oh. and uh, and there's two different dystopia, very different dystopias, right? In nineteen eighty four and Brave New World, but the gist of the nineteen eighty four dystopia is that there is Big Brother who basically controls every facet of your life, and in that dystopia, it's kind of our weaknesses that will, will be the end of us. And by weaknesses, I mean drive for power, for control, those things. And that will kind of be the end of humanity. But Brave New World, I think, picks um, a very different way of humanity coming to an end. And it's instead that our desires are going to be that actually destroys us. And if in Brave New World, basically, these people are drawn to taking this drug called Soma, which basically brings happiness without, without any real cost to their life. 
And they're constantly doing that. And it's their desires, their cravings that are what ruins humanity and society. And I think it's an interesting thing you just pick their want because in the book, um, it basically causes, it's, it's like Big Brother. It's very similar, right? It's causing everyone to conform to certain rules. And if you break them, you go into this room where you kind of get shocked back to conformity. Um, but then I think that the real life, I think there are connections to both. Like you said, Jeff Bezos is doing a similar thing, basically bringing everyone to conformity. But I think it's for a very different reason. No one's being shocked into it, but I think it's almost much more of the brave new world where people are drawn into it because they want to. A new iPhone comes out and people buy it because it can do these new things. It's, it looks better. It takes better photos. And incrementally, all these steps maybe make your life a little better. Um, but as a whole, I think it, it leads to a very similar dystopia that this that this book has, that uh, 1984 has, Brave New World has. Um, and this book is an interesting little medium between the two. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice point. Thank you. Thank you for situating this in a broader context, Lucas. I think that's that's very valuable. So uh, actually, side note for our listeners, Lucas and I had a game in high school where we would we were studying for the SAT. And so we would say different words and then uh the other person would give it would rank it on a scale of like one to ten so i would say like yeah that guy he's indefatigable and lucas would be like "Ooh, that's a nine yeah that's a good one <laughs> i would say that point that point was like close to a 10 lucas i mean that was that was oh. a good point oh thank you um anyway let's do something fun uh let's say let's say Okay, fun thing number one, and then fun thing number two. Fun thing number one, will you read this book to your kids? And if not, what would you read to your kids before it? Like, what's a kid's book that you really loved? Or like something sort of in the spirit of this book, but that you think sort of really knocked it out of the park? I am so glad you asked this question, because this is something that I was, the whole time I was reading it, I was wondering this. Like, would I read this to my kid? And if not, what would I want to read instead? And I finished the book and pretty definitively decided I was not going to read it to my kid. Wow. But I have a book here in my hand that I think if, if our listeners at home have not read yet, they have to, no matter what age they're at. It is quite an amazing book. Uh, it was my favorite book growing up. Um, Wancher or Matt, do you have any guesses what it could be? It was written in 1961, so two years before Wrinkle in Time. I do not see a uh, Newbery Award, actually, but that's fine. <laughs> definitely read the word. definitely don't read whatever this is if it didn't get a newberry ward <laughs> yeah is it i, I think I, I think it's i think it's gonna be phantom Tollbooth just because you said something about that earlier bingo 10 points to matt but but the thing is after finishing wrinkle in time i decided that I had not read Phantom Tollbooth in a long time. And maybe, in fact, all sixth grade books are actually this caliber. Maybe they're not actually that great. So I started rereading a Phantom Tollbooth. And just the writing, the, the differences was so stark. I was so blown away by how creative, how descriptive, how immersed I immediately got with the Phantom Tollbooth uh, in a way that I just never had in a wrinkle in time. So... Well, that'll definitely be our next episode. I mean, confession time, I have not read The Phantom Tollbooth. Wow. I've, I've read it. It's, it's pretty good. I'd say it's probably better than A Wrinkle in Time. Wow. But I, I wouldn't say it's like my favorite book of all time or anything. No, maybe I just didn't have a childhood. Maybe that's, that's my takeaway. Anyway, Matt, what would you read to your kid? The first book that I would read to my kid, like number one on the power rankings is like easily Percy Jackson 
uh, mostly just because I want to read that again. I, that, I love that book and that series so much. Um, but in, in a similar, I, I'd say something that kind of reminded me of this or that this book sort of reminded me of would be like The Giver, maybe. Um, also very dystopian. Um, also similar, similar like coming of age type thing, if I remember correctly. I don't know how well I remember uh, reading The Giver. Um, yeah, I don't remember it as well, but 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 I would personally want to read that again just because the, A Wrinkle in Time is very much like on my mind right now or whatever. And yeah, probably just want to mix it up. Mancha, would you read this to your future child? I think I would probably not. I would probably give this one a pass, at least for now. Uh, similar to you guys, it just didn't grab me that much. And I think there's so much, there's so much good stuff out there. Um, I'm trying to think of books that I really fell in love with when I was a kid. Because my mom used to read to me all the time, and as listeners know, there was a bunch of there's a bunch of kids in my family, and so I remember we would all sort of like pile up on my parents' bed, and like sometimes we'd just be like stacked up, like sort of like a pile of like puppies or something, or like a pile of lion cubs that you see in National Geographic, and we were all like, so immersed. And then she would finish the chapter, like, "No, come on, one more chapter, one more chapter." So I have very good memories. So I feel like the bar the bar needs to be pretty high. The kids, the kids need to be dying to, to read it. I was thinking of Percy Jackson, Matt, but the thing is, I feel like that's a good book to get you hooked like as an independent reader, maybe. you know, At least it did for me. Like I was young and I read that and it was so readable. Um, I mean, I feel, like, I feel like most books that uh, I had read aloud to me, like I was also reading on my own at the same time and it would be just like, like I would read the chapters and then I would like, have my dad would like read the chapters aloud to me and my brother but like i would already know what was going to happen because i'd already sort of like gone ahead of that day, so no mike mike was just in awe of your skills you were like oh yeah he's gonna die and mike was like what <laughs> no i was i was i was i was respectful i was respectful with regards to spoilers i would say that's good that's good um what are you talking about? uh Sorry, I just wanted to add one more point here. But in terms of choosing to read A Wrinkle in Time for your kid, I think something we haven't really mentioned is the fact that you can't really just read A Wrinkle in Time for your kid. It's part of a whole time quintet, uh, is what I think it's called. Yeah. So there are five of these books. and Do you have to read the other ones? The the thing is, after reading it, I have no desire to read the rest. However, anyone reading this book can immediately tell that there was a lot of setup here and there was very little payoff. As a matter of fact, the climax of the book I counted was three and a half pages before the end. It was very little payoff. And at the, the reason for that is that it's not really the end, right? It was a climax as one of the first and the books are going to continue and pick up right where it left off. The villain, it is still around and happy and living. And the only thing that has happened in this entire book is that the father is now back. And I guess we want a little journey, but otherwise, there's just very little payoff in this story. I would say. True. There's, there's, there's meat left on the bone for sure. Yeah, and so it's a real commitment. If you're going to read this to your child, you really got to set aside and read all five of them. Yeah, although it reads pretty easy, I will say that. I mean, the text is large, the book is short. Yeah, I appreciate a shorter um, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a good read for the podcast. You know, we so interestingly, we chose this book because we were thinking about books that could be read on multiple levels. So listeners, 
if you have good suggestions in this vein, we are very, we are hungry for your suggestions about books that you can read as a kid, but then you can come back at as an adult and get a lot out of. And I think this one, I mean, I think it was a little bit of a dud. I think we didn't get that much out of it as an adult. So I think we need to find other good ones. Book I loved that I would love to read my kid from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. Don't know if you guys know that book, but I was crazy about that book. Yeah, I, I know that book. I don't, hmm. I don't remember much about it's it. Awesome. Besides, I remember that they, um, that they would trick the museum guards by standing on like the toilet stalls. I always thought that was that was probably me. Yeah, that that always uh, that always got me. Yeah, I've never forgotten that actually. That, that, that's funny. Um, yeah, it's these two kids, and they just uh, they decide they want to run away from home, and they uh, they start living and camping in the 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 Met Metropolitan. Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And I just thought that was like so cool. I, I could spend like hours thinking about that when I was a kid, like, uh, you know, just spending time in this museum and like how you would sort of evade the security guards and stuff. So that's a good read. That's a good read. But anyway, anyway, closing, closing thoughts as a closing, as a twist on our closing thoughts, or feel free to answer this question and, and give another takeaway. But what character are you? in this book and why, and also just sort of general, general closing thoughts. I'm going to say, I want to be, I'm going to say, I want to be Calvin, but I'm probably Charles. So <laughs> Calvin, you know, he's, he's sort of, uh, he's tall, athletic, you know, he's good looking. At least Meg thinks he's good looking and he's brave. Also smart. Yeah. He's smart. He comes from a big family. Uh, and he's got a certain nobility to him and, uh, he's also good at math. So all those things are things I want to be. Charles is five. He's kind of pudgy and, uh, he, uh, he, um, he's precocious, but he's also, people make fun of him a little and he's, uh, he's an odd duck, I would say. So I think I'm probably more of a Charles than a Calvin, but, uh, but if I had my choice, I'd be Calvin. If... If I could be any character, I think I would end up being the father where kind of a nerd, really into his science, is doing his stuff, but doesn't really, in a real, very real sense, has no clue what he's actually doing. And he gets into a lot of trouble for it uh, and then can't get himself out of, um, out, of that, uh, out of that issue. And that's definitely somewhere I feel like I've ended up a lot, where I've been really curious, I've tried something and then needed someone else to come save me. Uh, so... Yeah, I'm definitely still thinking a little bit. It's kind of a tough question just because there aren't like that many characters that in in all yeah. like like you can't say any of the Mrs. W's. Um yeah. <laughs> you could I I don't really think so. I don't really I don't see myself as a Meg. Um I definitely don't see myself as Charles Wallace. Um and then yeah, Lucas just said the dad. Maybe yeah, so maybe Calvin more so than any of the others, but I don't know if it's a perfect yeah. I hate to say this, Matt. I think you could be a Sandy or a Dennis. Oh, like what? Oh, no. wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, those are the two. Yeah. Those are the two twins who get referenced like twice in the entire story. Yeah, that's, that's a, yeah. I actually thought that was that was what I thought one one of the funniest parts of the story at the very beginning when the two twins are like or Meg like got in trouble at school or something. And the two twins are like, oh, like you should have had us fight him, like, like we we totally would have fought him for you. 
So I thought that was really funny. And I thought it was even more funny that they literally like didn't show up in the story at all after that. Yeah, it seems like an awkward addition. I don't know why why they're there, but maybe maybe yeah. actually maybe it's a secret. Like the fact that we don't understand the twins means that you listen. Just wait till book four. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they definitely show up in the. They, they yeah, I think they do come into the round. That's true, but but I say that Matt because they're just they're pretty easygoing, you know, and mm. uh, they look after each other. They look after their siblings. I think it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could it. totally see myself. I could totally see myself just saying that I wanted to fight someone randomly and probably not meaning it. I mean, I I think they might actually mean it. Like, I'm sure they would fight like whoever's being mean to their sister. But but I would say that I would fight whoever's being mean to my sister. You know? Yeah. Nice. Nice. Okay. So, A Wrinkle in Time, a book about siblings who go to bat for each other. That's actually not not that far off uh what the book is actually about but uh but thank you lucas and matt for joining me this was a lot of fun thank you listener for tuning in uh give it a, i mean you know give it a read it's an easy read it's a quick read we haven't given it the best endorsement here but uh a lot of people do love this book a wrinkle in time by madeline Lundwell, so probably worth checking out and uh we'll see you next time on the brothers f